Good morning. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Let me add my welcome to Mike's. And if you've got a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find our text on page 983. If, if you've been using a pew Bible, we've been on page 983 for quite a while now. But this morning we are wrapping up our, uh, at least the first chapter of Colossians 1. We've been in this sermon series and we'll continue on until uh, close to Advent, actually. Uh, before we jump in, let me just say a couple things. Uh, first, some of you have recently learned that we now podcast our sermons. Some of you won't know what that means. That's okay. Others of you, that's of interest to you. And if you want to subscribe to this free service, and that means that you get your sermons uh, automatically sent to your iTunes app, then just go to the iTunes uh, store page in the search window, type Rivermont Evangelical Presbyterian Church, got to type all four words, and then just simply um, click on the podcast page and then click subscribe. And then every week you'll get a sermon uh, to your uh, inbox or to your uh, iTunes app uh, from us. That way you won't miss a sermon. And then secondly, our beloved Pastor Emeritus Lowell Sykes will be preaching next Sunday. I'm excited about that. And then Pastor Ron will preach the first Sunday of August. And then the second Sunday of August, Dr. David Weber, our new pastor, will be in the pulpit for the first time. So do continue to be in prayer for him and his family as they get ready to make this transition. Now, last week we learned that suffering is part of God's growth plan for us It's not just a reality for the Christian life. It's really a necessity for the Christian life. Just like resistance builds up our physical muscles, it also builds up our spiritual muscles. Suffering is that resistance that pushes against our spiritual muscles. It's what causes them to grow and to, as we call out to the Lord for His strength. That suffering, that that resistance is part of what helps us become mature in Christ. But it's only a part, as we'll see in the last three verses of chapter 1. Paul continues to fill out for us this picture of maturity in the life of a believer in Christ. So what does that picture look like? How do we get there? Well, for that, let's turn to our text this morning and find out. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask that your Spirit, even now, speak to our hearts. We need to hear from heaven and we look to you to bring us that, that manna, to bring us that bread. Rain down upon us, oh, Father, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, if you're a millennial or the parent of a millennial or you're just interested in such studies of culture, then you likely have heard the term delayed adulthood or delayed adolescence as referred to uh, millennials. And in case you're wondering, millennials are those born after 1980. They're the first generation to come of age in the new millennium, thus the name millennials. Now, research has shown that millennials are experiencing a delayed adulthood. They are taking longer to reach adulthood, to reach maturity. So what do they mean by delayed adulthood, and how is it measured? 
Well, there are five general milestones of adulthood, five benchmarks that people say, uh, you know, translates into being an adult. They are completing school, leaving home, becoming financially independent, marrying, and having a child. Statistics show that in each of these categories, millennials are taking longer to achieve these milestones, longer than any previous generation. But naturally, they want to know why. And it's clear to me from just my limited research that there isn't really just one reason. It's much more nuanced than that. And yet, most authors concur that the economy has had a huge impact on this generation. Derek Thompson, a senior editor at The Atlantic, is one such author, and he he wrote a fascinating piece a few years back about this phenomenon. He wrote, Many millennials came of age in the longest economic expansion of the 20th century and graduated into the worst recession since the 1930s. The abrupt contraction of opportunity has left a mark. Unemployment among 18 to 24-year-olds was 16% in 2011, twice as high as the national average. Median earnings fell more for the young than any other cohort, and college debt, most of which is held by 20-somethings, is at an all-time high. He went on to say that the Great Recession didn't just postpone financial independence for millions of young Americans. It has also changed their attitudes about what it means to be an adult. Now, what he's saying here that I think is interesting is that there's not just a delayed adulthood. There's a potential change in how we think about adulthood and maturity. And yet I don't think this phenomenon is unique to millennials. I think there is a spiritual parallel in our own life. Have you ever found yourself in a spiritual recession? A spiritual downturn in your faith because of suffering? When we experience such a recession, our attitudes about Christianity can change, can't they? And not for the better. If we're not careful, we can not only delay our spiritual adulthood, we can even redefine it. We can change the benchmarks of what it means to be spiritually mature. You may remember my reference to the idol of comfort last week. It's that inordinate desire for pleasure or that particular quality of life a quality of life that seeks to shield ourselves from discomfort at all costs. If comfort is what we live for, if that's what we're giving our hearts to, then comfort's going to shape our attitude about the Christian life, isn't it? It's going to guide our decisions about who we love and serve. We love those who are like us and serve those who thank us. We'll also guide our directions about what we save or what we spend We'll save to protect our security or spend to hide our insecurity. When we think that way, when we, when we live that way, we reveal a, a delayed spiritual adulthood or spiritual immaturity. Of course, this isn't just an American Christian problem. It's a universal Christian problem. All the New Testament writers push against spiritual immaturity. Paul in particular writes about the need for spiritual maturity in all of the churches, but even in Colossae as well. At times he is sharp and and criticizes the church for its immaturity. At other times he's gentle and encouraging as the church pursues maturity. What is his tone like with the Colossian church? Well, it's definitely a more gentle and encouraging tone. And it needs to be since he doesn't really have a personal relationship with the church in Colossae. And what's more, the nature of his letter is challenging. 
He has the difficult task of exposing spiritual immaturity while at the same time encouraging spiritual maturity. Paul says the key to maturity in Christ is through the mystery that is Christ. The key to maturity in Christ is through the mystery that is Christ. So here are my two points. First, the the mystery that is Christ. Then secondly, our maturity in Christ. So what do we mean by the the mystery that is Christ? Well, last week we said that the power to rejoice in our suffering came through a mystery. A mystery, Paul said in verse 26, that was hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What was that mystery? Well, we said that that mystery wasn't a what, but a who. The mystery was Christ Jesus, God's anointed Son, our perfect Redeemer. But that's only part of the mystery. In verse 27, Paul says the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now that is mysterious. We don't always hear much about Christ in us. The Bible mostly talks about our union with Christ. Over and over again, the Apostle Paul and the the New Testament writers describe us as being in Christ. We are united in Him and to Him hidden in His righteousness, hidden in His death and resurrection. But here Paul says that Christ is also in us. How can that be? Especially when we read elsewhere that Jesus is seated right now at the Father's right hand. In His glorified body, He reigns and rules and makes intercession for us in heaven. How do we understand this mystery? Well, I think in this way, and Mike's already um, alluded to this, Christ indwells all who belong to Him by the Holy Spirit. All who are in Him have been given the Holy Spirit. Remember John 14 and Jesus' promise to send another helper. That promise was not a different kind of helper, but the same kind of helper as Jesus. Nothing was to be lost in that transition. In fact, Jesus said elsewhere that it would, it would be better to have the Holy Spirit. Better how? Jesus tells us in John 14 that this Helper, the Holy Spirit, He won't just be with you. He'll be in you. He will take up residence in your life, Christ in you, by the Holy Spirit. So what does He mean by this hope of glory? When we speak of hope, we we usually do so in, in some sense of uncertainty, don't we? We say things like, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope I get the job promotion I applied for. I hope that my car lasts three more years. We are uncertain of these things. Why? Because we don't know the future. We want to believe these things will happen, but we're not certain that they will. We hope for the best, but there is no guarantee. Now, when the Bible speaks of hope, it speaks with certainty. It looks forward to something in confident expectation. It doesn't waver. There are no doubts. The hope of glory, the hope of eternal life in Christ is a certain hope. It's certain because of Christ and His death and His resurrection. But how can we be so sure? Because of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Paul says that He is the guarantee of our hope in Ephesians 1. He writes in verse 13, In Him, that that is Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire a possession of it to the praise of His glory. My friends, if you are in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the King's seal on your life. It authenticates your claim upon your inheritance. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that inheritance. Even though we are not in possession of it now, it is as good as ours because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is a certain hope. And this begins to get at why this mystery is so rich and glorious. Consider the movement of God towards man. As creator, God enjoyed a a personal relationship with Adam and Eve. Before God and each other, they were naked and unashamed. But that all changed when they sinned. They lost that personal relationship with God. Before God and each other, they were now naked and deeply ashamed. They were cut off. All of their descendants were also cut off. But God made a promise to them and to us. A Savior, a Rescuer would come close and set them free. Until then, the closest God could come was the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle and then the temple. No one had access to God's presence except the high priest. And he only had access once a year to make sacrifices to atone for the people's sin. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to the Savior. Everything anticipated His coming. God's covenant promises to the patriarchs, the offices of prophet, priest, and king, the sacrifices, the miracles, they all pointed to the fulfillment of God's promise through His Savior. And God's people longed for their Savior to be revealed. And then He was revealed. Through a miraculous conception, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You may remember that the word dwelt literally means to tabernacle. God tabernacled among us through Jesus. God became incarnate. He became human. God, who was separated from His people because of their sin, had come close. He had become accessible in the person of Jesus. And yet His access was limited by time and space, wasn't it? He could only be in one place at one time. He could be with His disciples in Capernaum, but He couldn't be with Mary and Martha in Bethany. And so God must come closer still. And as I said earlier, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, who is another helper of the same kind, and yet unlike Jesus, He comes close in a way that defies explanation. He indwells each one of us who are in Christ. He tabernacles in our very lives. He has come close and personal to you and to me. Do you see the movement of God toward His people? God tabernacled among His people. Then sent Jesus who tabernacled with His people. Then sent the Holy Spirit who tabernacled in His people. God has come so close to us. And as the Spirit applies Christ's saving work in our life, He begins to mature us. He grows us up so that we will be ready to meet our God face to face in glory. There we will experience the joy and intimacy of being in God's presence. We will bow down and worship God, not as an enemy before a conquering king, but as an estranged son before a loving father. Oh, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Now we know that the mystery that is Christ. Secondly, what does it mean to become mature in Christ? How are we to grow up in Christ? Paul spells it out for us in verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The path to maturity, Paul says, comes through gospel proclamation and includes warnings and teachings. Now it's important to note that becoming mature in Christ begins and ends with gospel proclamation. We often tend to think that it's just the beginning. It's simply the doorway into Christianity. But that's not what Paul is saying. I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make progress in the kingdom. He's saying the gospel is the way that we mature in the kingdom, the way that we mature in Christ. It's, I think, quite easy for us to embrace the gospel at conversion. We have seen the ugliness of our sin and its stain in our life. We have seen the chasm that exists between God and our sin. We are all too eager to receive the good news of the gospel. That Jesus has paid the penalty of our sin. Through Him our sins are forgiven and we are given new hearts. But as we get older, that clarity can sometimes fade, can it? The sharpness of our spiritual sight can become blurred. And it becomes blurred because we begin to think too highly of ourselves. We become enthralled and enamored with our own righteousness. We develop a self-righteous heart. One that measures our righteousness not against God's righteousness, but our neighbor's righteousness. Remember what the Pharisees said in Jesus' parable in Luke 18. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You see, this Pharisee was measuring his righteousness against his neighbor's righteousness. This is dangerous business, my friends. We become blind to the sin that the writer of Hebrews says so easily entangles us. In effect, what we're doing is is lowering God's standard to ours. And when that happens, we begin to feel spiritually superior. We feel superior to those whose righteousness falls short of our own. This is not spiritual maturity. This is actually spiritual immaturity. And it leads us down the road to self-destruction. We need to be reminded that Christ is our righteousness. The Bible says our righteousness at best is like a filthy rag. It's worthless. Those filthy rags can never cover over our sin. But Christ's righteousness, it's like a royal robe. It's priceless. Christ's righteousness can cover all of our sin. God gives us that robe of righteousness because of Christ's work. And not our own. But maybe that's not your struggle. Maybe your struggle is not that you think too highly of yourself, but that you think that you think too lowly of God's grace. Subconsciously, we can think, well, I'm covered by God's grace. I'm already forgiven. Do I really need to keep on repenting? When we think that way, we begin to minimize our sin and its impact on our soul. We downplay its seriousness. We begin to cheapen grace. We empty it of its power and its glory. German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. 
Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Paul also responds to this low view of grace in Romans 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, this is not spiritual maturity either. This is also spiritual immaturity. And it will surely lead us down the road to self-destruction. Is it any wonder why we need the gospel proclaimed to our hearts constantly? Our flesh is always fighting against the Spirit's work to present us mature in Christ. It's a battle. Paul captures that struggle in verse 29. He writes, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What is Paul laboring and struggling over? It's presenting everyone mature in Christ. Why is it a struggle? Because we don't want to become mature. We want to remain spiritual children. Becoming mature in Christ is hard. It requires things of us that are not natural to us. Just looking at Colossians alone. Maturity in Christ calls us to forgive those who harm us. To absorb the cost of their sin against us. To bear the pain and the rejection and the suffering their sin causes us. Maturity in Christ calls us to love people that are different from us. Different personalities. Different perspectives. Different families. Different socioeconomic levels. It even calls us to love our enemies sacrificially. Maturity in Christ calls us to to find our identity in Christ, not our work or our children or our bank accounts or our social standing or even our righteousness. Maturity in Christ calls us to put to death our earthly desires, which Paul begins to name in chapter 3 as sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And he likewise calls us to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, just to name a few. Maturity in Christ calls wives to submit to their husbands. It calls husbands to love their wives and help them flourish. It calls children to obey their parents even if they don't agree with them. It calls fathers to parent their children by not frustrating them but helping them flourish. It calls employees to obey your employers even if you don't agree with them. Becoming mature in Christ is a struggle. Our flesh is constantly working against us. Are you discouraged? It's okay if you are. But Paul encourages us with this truth. He says that this toil, this struggle is accomplished with all the energy or power that the Holy Spirit is powerfully working within you. His power is there. It is working. We may not see it as clearly as we would like, but He is working. You say, Brad, how do you know? Here's how you know. As you hear the Gospel proclaimed, as you hear its warnings and its teachings, you receive it. You welcome it. You savor it. You apply it to your life. That's evidence that the Spirit is at work in your life. He is making space in your heart for the truth of the Gospel to take root. He's laying down good seed that both kills spiritual immaturity and promotes healthy spiritual maturity. Let me ask you, 
How often have you been in a worship service here or a Sunday school class or a life group and you've heard with clarity gospel proclamation. The word of Christ came to you and you heard it and you embraced it and you lived it out. You let it begin to have its intended effect to change your heart. That was the Spirit's power working mightily within you. Paul gives us, I think, a wonderful example of of how this power was working in the early church. Did you catch his reference to the Gentiles in verse 27? How God made known to the Gentiles the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is difficult to appreciate the magnitude of what Paul is saying here. To the ear of a Jewish Christian, this statement would have been confusing at best and offensive at worst. God's people had always been the Israelites, His chosen ones since the day they had come out of Egypt. Yet part of God's glorious mystery was the inclusion and engrafting of Gentiles, that's you and me, into Israel. Now this would have been very difficult for a Jewish Christian to understand, much less accept. uh, Jews had forever looked down upon Gentiles. There was a great deal of discrimination, much like in the South, between whites and blacks. Paul, before his conversion, would certainly have looked down on the Gentiles. But when the gospel got a hold of his life, he saw them differently. He saw that in Christ, the playing field was leveled. As he wrote in Galatians 3.28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, that is Gentile, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul had undergone a transformation. The gospel had created space in his heart to embrace God's truth. The truth that the gospel was for everyone. Notice again what he says in verse 28. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, Jew and Gentile. What a testimony of Paul's own maturing in Christ. I wonder this morning, where does God need to do more of His maturing work in your life? Where are His teachings and His warnings giving you trouble? Where are they causing you to stumble? Where does the gospel need to go deeper? Where are you still experiencing a delayed spiritual adulthood? Well, if you are in Christ, you possess the riches of the glory of this mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. As you struggle towards maturity, know that He is the one who labors on your behalf. It is His strength, not your own. He is committed to presenting you mature in Christ. May He have His way in your life and in mine. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank You. We thank You for the riches of the glory of this mystery. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Cause us to continually wonder at the gospel as it is proclaimed to our hearts. That we may experience transformation in every facet of our life. That we may become more and more mature in Christ. Thank you for the work of the Spirit who is faithful to accomplish that work in our life. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.